John 19, 1 through 12. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him and said, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know him, or know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given from, to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. And then Psalm 22 14 through 18. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Chris. So uh, we are going to be in John 19 today. So if you have your Bibles, your phones, your iPads, just turn there, and we're going to camp there. I want to review a bit where we've been to get us up to this context, and then we'll just simply go through the passage, and we're actually going to go through uh, verse 27 this morning. Um, Chris just read through the first part of 12 uh, today, but we're going to go to 27. Um, So Jesus has been on trial, so to speak. He's been on trial. It's a series of kangaroo courts, really. But this is what he had to go through in order to complete his mission of saving those for whom he goes to the cross, for those who would believe in him. And now we get to the sentencing part of the trial and and the crucifixion. Pilate still wants him to be released, but the Jews have declared that he is guilty, so Pilate has to do something, and he keeps trying to mitigate that. Ultimately, he does send him to the cross, But this, what we're looking at today is is the assumption that Jesus has been found guilty. He has no guilt, but he's been found guilty. And now we're just negotiating the sentence and we get started on the sentencing and the punishment of Jesus. And there are three statements I want to make before we get started. Uh, One of them is a bit of a disclaimer. I hope you understand that. 
Uh, that's that first statement. These verses really today that we're going to look at all the way through 27 are not for the faint of heart. Uh, crucifixion is an ancient and cruel execution. It's horrific and humiliating. And we'll see that. Second of all, there's more irony in these 27 verses perhaps than in the rest of this gospel. And I'm going to do everything I can to point out all of the irony in this passage. And then third, at the very end of this passage, in the last few verses, even amid this horrific narrative, Jesus demonstrates great tenderness and attention to detail. So let's look at the first five verses. I'll reread those. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So what does it mean that Pilate had him flogged? Well, ancient Roman flogging was almost as bad as crucifixion. But it was paired with crucifixion. Flogging was done in order to subdue the one who was going to be crucified. To, to sort of lower his resistance and to dehumanize him before he was actually nailed to the cross. It, make him more pliable. It would be easier to nail him to the cross. But, but the flogging was so brutal that sometimes people would die from the flogging before they would even get to the crucifixion. And the flogging tool was a 12-inch wooden baton with 24 to 28-inch leather straps attached to the baton, and at the end of the straps were sharp pieces of metal and bone. And the person would be whipped with this flogging tool on his back. And Jesus did survive this, but you have to understand that, that he's in bad shape uh, right now. Uh, humanly, physically, he's being subdued by all of this very violent activity. And then, in addition to this flogging, they do this crown of thorns and the purple robe. And these two items were designed both to for added pain and to be able to help in the process of mocking the one being crucified. It was, it was part of the sport, if you will, for Roman crucifixions that the one being crucified would also be mocked. And there was always a crowd around to be able to mock the ones um, being crucified. So this crown of thorns, any of you have bougainvillea plants? We do. And anybody have those plants? Okay. Those thorns are pretty horrible, right? So I don't like cutting them, so I just asked Jackie to do it. But they're really bad. I mean, those thorns are terrible. So this crown was, was either made of that, or uh, most scholars say it was actually probably made from date palm branches with those longer, thicker spikes, and those spikes were twisted into the crown. Just, just awful, either way. But besides the pain, this crown of thorns was supposed to also make Jesus look cartoonish. And then there's the purple robe. And the robe is a joke. It's also quite cartoonish what they were doing to him. Purple is the color of royalty, and kings wear robes. 
but this was designed to make fun of Jesus' claim uh, that, he, that he was a king of a kingdom somewhere else, and also to, to make fun of the claim that the Jews said uh, that he claims to be a king. And, and the other thing about the robe is that after you've been flogged and you, they put the robe on him, later when they take the robe off to be crucified, you can imagine that it's stuck to him and how painful that would be. And then the soldiers, following the script, mockingly hail Jesus as king, and then slap him derisively. But this is actually, all of this right here that we just looked at, all of this was actually a strategy by Pilate because he was hoping to get the Jewish leaders to let Jesus go if he just did this to them. That was his plan. So what's happening with Pilate is he's reeling a bit right now from the conversation he's he had with Jesus in chapter 18 about what kingdom Jesus actually has. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And he's reeling from Jesus' claims to the truth. And those things made Pilate nervous. We're also told in Matthew's gospel that Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus that was very troubling, and she went to Pilate and said, don't have anything to do with this man. If you have anything to do with him, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Try to just get him out of your life. You need to get rid of him. And so Pilate is scheming to just try to get this pushed off, but it does not work. In verses 4 through 5, Pilate tells the crowd, all right, I'm going to bring him out. I'm going to bring out this now beaten cartoonish character, and he says, here is the man, as if to say, this is who you all are so worried about? I mean, come on, we've done enough to him, let's let him go. But it doesn't work. Look at the next four verses, six through nine. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So obviously the Jews, the professional religious people, are not mollified by Pilate's scheming presentation of Jesus. But now, when asked... The Jewish religious people finally tell Pilate why they want him executed. He's been asking. Now they finally give him an answer. And this opens up a whole new door for Pilate. If you remember in chapter 18, they refused to answer the question. Instead, they just said, listen, if this guy wasn't guilty, if he wasn't evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. That was, that was their answer. And now they say, well, he claims to be the son of God, and we have a real problem with that. You need to crucify him. But Pilate has a problem with that as well. We've mentioned this previously. Pilate also believed in the Greco-Roman myths of Olympic and cosmic gods, deities who would sometime appear, sometimes appear on earth and walk around on earth as human beings, interacting with human beings. And these deities had great powers and you never wanted to get on their bad side. He believed in that pantheon and that they would actually manifest themselves as humans and walk around uh, on the earth. And so as hardened as Pilate was, he was very worried about this. So he's all the more afraid because he already suspected that Jesus
Jesus may have been one of these deities, or now they're saying he claims to be the Son of God. If Jesus really is God or the Son of God, that's not helpful either because Pilate doesn't want to be the one who executes him. He doesn't want to be responsible for that. So he asked Jesus yet another question. He says, where are you from? And I think Pilate is finally realizing that he's not just dealing with some misguided soul. He's trying to find out if Jesus really is one of these deities. But Jesus doesn't answer. And I think the reason he doesn't answer is because he's already answered him. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. You didn't want to engage me on that. You didn't want to find out more about that. I gave you an answer before in chapter 18. Jesus never said chapter 18. He didn't know there were chapters in the Gospels. But he said, I've already said this. Essentially, he's saying, I've already said this to you. I am a king, but not of this world. You didn't want to engage with that. And really... What else is happening here? Many people believe that in his own little way, Jesus is trying to help Pilate. He's trying to get through to Pilate just who it is he's dealing with. He's trying to let him know, hey, I can actually be something that's good for you. But, but instead, for now, Pilate is just frustrated all the more. So in his frustration and fear... Pilate does what most people do when faced with a seemingly impossible political situation. He lashes out and tries to assert power. So watch what happens these next few verses. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. So Pilate does what Roman governors would do. He flexes his Roman governmental muscle in a way that he believes will get Jesus in line, will get Jesus to start responding to him the way he wants him to. Pilate claims all authority over Jesus and the disposition of his sentence. So Pilate's saying, I'm in charge here, pal. So come on. And Jesus does answer this assertion. And this is a paraphrase, and it's my paraphrase. I'm kind of adding a little bit to the text, but you get the point. Jesus says, uh, no, I'm actually the one in charge. I know this is hard for you to understand, Pilate, and it doesn't look like I'm in charge, but the one here with all authority is actually me. You can't even take another breath without my say-so. And then again, again, in a way that seems to me and others to be helpful to Pilate, Jesus says something that should comfort Pilate a little bit. He tells him that he knows that Pilate essentially is just a pawn in all of this and that the people who are really responsible are Caiaphas, the chief priests, and Annas, and everybody else. That they're the ones truly responsible. And that does it for Pilate. Now all he wants to do is release Jesus. But as we, see, as we will see in these next verses, the Jews also have something that Pilate fears. So watch what happens here. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard those words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in the Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover, which is a, it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? 
The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. The threat that the Jews make to Pilate in, in, in the rest of verse 12 is a powerful one. If Caesar ever got an inkling, this is Tiberius now, and, and, and he was a paranoid guy. If he ever got an inkling or heard a rumor or was told that Pilate was somehow cozy with someone other than Rome and its leadership, he would be summarily executed. There would be no Miranda reading to him. There would be no investigation. There would be no uh, assumption of innocence. They would simply execute Pilate. And so Pilate caves. Yes, he tried one more time to get them to reconsider, asking if they really wanted to kill him. But they were in such a frenzy at this point that they were having none of it. There was nothing that Pilate could do to assuage their, their desire to have Jesus executed. And the, the greatest irony of all this, I think this is the greatest irony, is that the Jews understand, the Jew, especially the professional religious Jews, they hated Rome, hated with everything that that word implies, with all of its weight, all of its evilness, all of its cruelty. They hated Rome and they hated Caesar. And yet now, in order to get rid of Jesus, they align themselves, not only with Rome, but with Caesar, we have no king but Caesar. That's blasphemy. These religious Jews who are so pious and it's on the day of preparation and they're getting ready for the Sabbath and they want to follow all the rules and, and when Jesus gets crucified, they want to take him down before the Sabbath. They're following all the rules. Here, they blaspheme their God, Yahweh, by saying we have no king but Caesar. Just tremendous irony. But they were willing to align themselves with Rome and with Caesar if that's what it took to get Jesus out of their hair. And here's another irony. The Jews and Pilate together pronounced judgment on the very one that God the Father gave the authority for all judgment to. And that would be Jesus. And then you have to remember also John chapter 1 verse 11 which now we understand is quite prophetic. This is where John writes that the Word became flesh, and the Word, Jesus, went to his own, went to his kin, went to his people, the Jews, but his own did not receive him. So I would stop here and ask, a, I think, a serious and, and a, a self-reflecting, a self-awareness question. What are the things that you and I get so focused on that we're willing to give up on Jesus in order to receive those things? And I think that question continues the theme that Tyler Thompson laid out for us last week when he preached on the end of, of chapter 18, when he said this idea of making a deal with the devil, how often are we willing to make that deal in order to get something that we want, and then we find out it costs us way more than we ever thought or were willing to pay. Our founding pastor used to say this about sin, and I can tell you from personal experience that he's right. Sin always takes us farther than we wanted to go. It always costs us more than we ever thought it would cost us. And it always keeps us where we didn't want to go for way longer than we wanted to stay. That's what sin does to us. And don't make the mistake of thinking that you are impervious or that I am impervious to doing what the Jews did here. Giving up Jesus and it costing them their real relationship with God. We're all willing to do that because false gods are tricky. 
Our desires are tricky. Our intentions are tricky. Many of us are so good at justifying ungodly behavior and ungodly pursuits by telling ourselves that our intentions are good. I heard this yesterday. I was with somebody having a conversation, and and, and he brought this up. He says, you know the old saying, we judge others by their actions, and we judge ourselves by what? Our intentions. Because we're always sure that our intentions are good and pure. Scripture has a bit of a problem with that. Let me just point it out to you. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is wicked and deceitful above everything else. Your heart, my heart, our hearts, our fallen human hearts are wicked and deceitful above everything else. No one can understand them. And then Numbers 15, 39. Here's God speaking to the Jews in Numbers 15, 39. He says, you will have tassels to look at on your garments. I want you to put tassels on your garments, so that when you look at the tassels, you're going to be reminded of my law, of my commandments. He says, so you'll have these tassels to look at so that you'll remember all the commands of the Lord to do them, the commandments, but not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Yes, the Bible uses the word whore after. Our hearts prostitute themselves and whore after things. And so now they crucified Jesus. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So the horizontal beam of the cross was always carried by the condemned to the place where they would be crucified. And we know from the other Gospels that Jesus did get some help with this on the way there. And then the process of of crucifixion. So if you read through history, you know that um, probably the strongest theory about how crucifixion was developed was it was taken from the Persians who in the 6th century, 5th century, 5th century B.C., around 460, if you look in the Bible and read the story of Esther, you know that Haman was hung in the gallows. Uh, for his crimes against God's people. Um, And when they talk about the Persian way of hanging from the gallows, uh, what they would do is they would chop down a very large tree, and then they would take the trunk of the tree and they would strip it down so that it was just uh, this pole, and sometimes it was 30, 40, even as, as, as tall as 70 feet. And one end of the pole they would sharpen into a point, kind of like a pencil, and then they would hold the condemned. People would hold the condemned. They'd get other people to run, run that uh, tree trunk with the sharp point through the condemned. And then they would p- uh, push the, 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 the tree trunk up with the condemned at the top with, with the tree trunk sticking out of him and put it in a hole in the ground. And there he would be until he died 15 or 20 minutes later, however long it took to die. And so the Romans saw that. And the theory is that the Romans saw that and they said, that's a good way to kill people, but what we want to do is we want to prolong it. We want it to be more torturous. We want it to be more shameful. 
How about if we add a cross beam and nail them so it doesn't go through their torso, but nail them through their hands or their wrists and nail their feet to the, uh, to the vertical beam, and then, and then it won't, uh, it won't, they won't die so fast. It'll last longer, and we can, we can make sure that people see this, and it will, be, it will be an impediment to other people committing crimes. That was, that was their whole idea behind it. So the Romans took this idea, several historians have said this, the Romans took this idea from the Persians and they perfected it. They made it last way longer, made it more shameful, more humiliating, more torturous. They added this crossbeam, nailed the wrists, nails the feet. They turned the feet sideways and they, and they would nail through the feet or even through the ankles. And then right below the feet, there was a place, a little shelf where you, you could put your feet and the reason they had that was you could push up with your feet when you were on the cross in order to breathe. So the way you would die primarily from uh, crucifixion is asphyxiation or, or suffocation because you're, you're leaning forward with such, uh, such weight that it constricts your breathing. And so the idea is that you have to keep pushing up on that little shelf in order to get breath. And that little shelf wasn't there to, to help the person, but rather uh, to, to prolong the agony of the person. Now, you're naturally, you're naturally going to want to take a breath, so you're going to keep pushing up on that, but it just prolongs the agony of, of you being up there. And as I said, death mostly came eventually from suffocation, when the person finally gave up having strength to be able to push up at all. And so a person could actually live for days or even up to a week, we're told, in history on the cross. Jesus' crucifixion was extraordinarily short by comparison to other crucifixions. And of course, if you're there on the cross for more than 24 hours, you've got, uh, you've got the weather to contend with, you've got predatory animals to contend with, and of course the people constantly coming by. They're mocking you, they're cruel, they're wagging their tongues, which means they're, they're disparaging you. And they also, by the way, they crucified you naked in order to add to the shame and to the humiliation as well. And crucifixion always happened in a high traffic place. They never did it in a city because they didn't want to sully the city. But they would do it on the main thoroughfare outside of the city in order to make sure that as many people as possible saw it so that people would be dissuaded from, from doing whatever crime that they would put on the top of the cross of these uh, criminals. The charges of the criminals were always put on the top uh, of the vertical beam. And, and the idea, the message is, don't do this or this could be you. You don't want to be this person. And for Jesus, Pilate wrote, King of the Jews. And he wrote it in three languages. He wrote it in Aramaic, which was the local language spoken right there. And then he also wrote it in Latin, which was the official governmental language of Rome. And then he wrote it in Greek, which was the lingua franca, or the common language of all the commerce and business that was done throughout the Mediterranean world. So he was covering all of his bases to make sure that everybody saw this. But look, even though the Jews finally got what they wanted, they finally got Jesus crucified, they still were not satisfied. Change the inscription, they cry out to Pilate. This was Pilate's one tiny little victory. He said, nah, just deal with it. One scholar calls this Pilate's psychological revenge against the professional religious people. By the way, whatever happened to Pilate? It's an interesting question, little rabbit to chase. Most historians say that Pilate was either exiled or he was executed. Now, why is that? Well. The executed part. Even though Pilate had crucified 
Jesus, Tiberius, who I mentioned before, he was the Caesar at the time, he was a notoriously suspicious and paranoid and bitter person who suspected virtually everybody of disloyalty. And so the speculation is the, that the fact that Pilate was even involved with this potential king, even though he had him crucified, that he was involved with this potential king or Olympic deity in any way made Tiberius decide, I need to play it safe. We're going to send in the Roman soldiers and we're going to execute Pilate. Or, or there are a number of people who believe this is what happened. Pilate, as a result of this encounter, and as a result of watching Jesus being crucified, and as a result of his conversations with Jesus during this time, Pilate actually became a follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit worked in his life, and he declared his faith in Jesus. But he also knew enough that becoming a Christian would not work well politically or socially, and so he exiled himself. He, he put himself into exile. That's one of the two things. Anyway, if you were wondering about that. So now the conclusion of today's passage, 23 through 27. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took care of her took her to his own home. So generally, there are five pieces of clothing that the average first century Mediterranean man would wear. And so there were usually four soldiers on the detail for crucifixion. And so they each got a piece of the clothing, and then they cast lots for the fifth rather than tearing it. And that fulfills Psalm 22, which is why it was part of the reading this morning, why Chris read that. And it was common for the soldiers in charge of the crucifixion to to get the clothing of the executed, and the clothing of the executed was usually their entire estate. That was it. That was everything that they owned. And so there was actually, believe it or not, a desire among Roman soldiers to get this detail of being able to be part of the execution teams because they got a bonus of some sort. Clothing was very valuable in their economy back then. But then those last couple of verses, man, I'm telling you, Jesus' mother is there. <laughs> I just can't even imagine. I cannot imagine. As a parent, I just... And yet she stood there and took it. And Jesus is hanging there on the cross, sacrificing for them and for us, and yet he's still tuned into his responsibility and the detail to make sure that his mother gets taken care of after his death. So he asked John, the writer of this gospel, to be his mother's benefactor. And John agrees. He takes care of her. No problem. Now Jesus hasn't passed away yet. That's next week. We're going to get there. So the question is, how do we wrap for today? I want to wrap by mentioning something that we talked a little bit about a couple of weeks ago when Luke was here. 
This, it's this tension that I feel in reading this, these, ver these chapters here. Jesus is the one with all authority. He could have defended himself. He could have stopped this. He had the authority and the power to stop this cold. And there's a sense that I think many of us have when we read this, at least I do, that it would have been nice if he had, you know? It, I don't mean to compare him to Jesus to Jack Reacher or Jack Bauer or, or you know, uh, Denzel Washington, you know. I, I, I don't, I, I'm just saying, though, uh, you know in those movies those guys are always going to win, right? Somehow they're going to get out of whatever impossible situation they're in and they're going to take care of their enemies. And you feel like if anybody really has that power, it's Jesus. He could come right off that cross and he could take care of them. He could stop this. He could stop it before he even got to the flogging. He could have stopped this. Why didn't he stop it? It would have been so cool if he had done that. Our founding pastor, Tom, again, he used to say, this was in one of Tom's more raw moments, he used to say that if it was him on the cross and the people began to mock and curse and humiliate him, he said, well, and I quote directly from Tom, I would have come right down off that cross and pinched their little heads off. <laughs> you know the old saying, cut off the head and the battle is won, right? You know that saying, right? You've got to cut off the head and you can win the battle. Actually, Jesus did pinch off the head by going to the cross. Not by coming down off the cross, but by going to the cross. Jesus pinched off Satan's head through the crucifixion. The crucifixion actually fulfills Genesis 3.15 where God says to the serpent, to the adversary, to Satan, when he's cursing him, he says there's going to be enmity between you and the woman now. and You're going to bruise her offspring, but her offspring is going to bruise your head. And that vernacular means, yeah, you're going to be able to wound Jesus, the Messiah. You're going to be able to wound him. That's what the cross is about. But Jesus conquered even, conquers even the cross through his resurrection. But in fact, Jesus is going to bruise Satan's head. What that means in ancient Hebrew vernacular is utterly crush his head and destroy him. So by going to the cross and staying on the cross, Jesus has crushed Satan. He has literally pinched off his head. And so, yes, I've used this illustration before. It's not mine, but I like it because I'm a scorpion geek. Like a scorpion, Satan is still running around stinging things even though his head is pinched off. But as John Crawford says, Satan, with his head pinched off, has an expiration date. And that date is coming. Satan is a perishable item. And when Jesus returns again, it's it. That's it. And that is great news. What has happened here, this cross, in all of its cruelty, in all of its violence, in all of its shame, in all of its humility, in all of its ugliness, Jesus wins. And it's our victory that we get to celebrate because he did this for us. And so really, there's beauty in the cross for us because it's what gives us life, it's what gives us redemption, it's what reconciles us to God. To us, the cross is the beauty of salvation and eternal life. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, these, these passages toward the end of the Gospels are, man, they are rough. But it's a reminder of what you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were willing to go through for us. We should stand in awe of that. And it's through this sacrifice that we receive your grace and mercy and love. Not because we've done anything good, but because Jesus has done it all. And we get to be the beneficiaries of that great gift. So God, I pray that we would be a community of, of hope, a community of faith, a community of grace, a community of mercy and love, and that we would have the courage to, as Paul says, live in a manner worthy of our calling in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So help us to be able to do that. And Father, as we come to your table now, remind us that this table is a wonderful celebration of the redemption that we have through your Son. That he calls us to this table. On the night before he was betrayed and crucified, he says, you get to come to this table and be with me because of what I'm about to do. That's a beautiful thing. Help us to be able to do that now as we sing, as we come to your table, as we pray and as we respond. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to have our time of response and reflection. We're going to sing a couple more songs together. We're going to come to the Lord's table. If our communion servers would please come forward. Just maybe 24 hours, less than 24 hours before all of this happened in chapter 19, Jesus is sitting with his friends and he says, he takes the bread and he says, this is my body, which is for you given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then later he takes a cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul says, as often as we come and we take this this meal together, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. We proclaim it by the confession that we need him and the celebration that we have him. And so that's what we're going to do now. We also have people standing in the wings Deacons and elders, if you need prayer, if you have any questions, if you, if you, have any, you want to have a conversation with somebody, you need, uh, you need somebody to pray for you or for somebody else, please uh, talk to them at this time. Um, when you get back to your table after you've taken your elements, and there's no rush to take the elements, once you've taken them as the Spirit leads you, and if you can, you can, sing, uh, you can stand and join in uh, with the singing of these songs. So we'll do that now.
on that cross of Calvary. Every burden has been defeated, and every wretched heart redeemed. You drown our sin in seas of crimson, and hallelujah, death is beaten, Christ has risen from the grave, and hallelujah, it is finished all to you, the highest
that cross of Calvary where every burden has been defeated and every wretched heart redeemed you drown our sins in seas of crimson was redeemed, only beauty remained. My orphan heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was Rejoice as though heaven had lost. But thank Jesus for
Amen. Well, thank you for being here and worshiping with us. Uh, it's important to remember that we, we do not graduate from the gospel. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. And every single time we gather, we get to uh, gather around the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And the importance of this, though, the reason that we make such a big deal about the cross is what it means for us. This is what we got to pray through this morning, and I want to read it for us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, therefore. Sinclair Ferguson writes uh, in his book, The Whole Christ, he writes about the difference between if and therefore. What I'm about to read, it doesn't say, if you do well, then you have this victory. No. It says, God has given us this victory. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. We love you. Go and live all of life, all for Christ. We'll see you next week.